Welcome back to another episode of the best of the best, Maverick's Guide to Success. I am your host, Maverick Levy. I just want to say thank you to everyone who not only listens to the show, but subscribes, shows support, follows the show on Instagram. And also, I know I mentioned this last week, but this podcast is in the top 2% of popularity of all podcasts in the world via a website called Listen Notes. And that's out of more than 2 million podcasts last I checked. So seriously, thank you. This is only episode 28 and it the show has grown so much. It is tremendous to see the growth, but it couldn't have happened without all of you. So you all are truly the best of the best. Quick reminders before jumping into today's interview that you should follow the podcast on social media. The username across all platforms is at tbotbpod and also check out the website tbotbpod.com. I talk about it quite often because I think it is a very valuable resource to all of you. If there's any sort of guest that resonates with you that maybe it's what you want to do in life or maybe you need their assistance, check out the website. Their information is on there for all of you to be able to reach them and say, hey, I heard you on the best of the best. So you already have that relationship with them. And also, everyone, it's disclaimer time, probably your least favorite time of the podcast, but it's got to be done. So know that the discussions on this podcast are for informational purposes only. I cannot predict and do not guarantee that you will attain a particular result from the information provided. You should always seek professional assistance before making decisions in connection with the topics discussed. I have a great interview for you all to listen to, so let's dive right into that. On today's show, I have someone who is truly one of the best of the best in their industry. Today's guest is Neil Rockind, who is the owner of Rockind Law, a criminal defense law firm based out of a suburb outside of Detroit, Michigan. And on top of being one of the best of the best attorneys, he has his own podcast called Kill Across Examination, so make sure to go listen to that. He also has a very popular YouTube channel that has accumulated over 2 million views and now has more than 10,000 subscribers. Well, that was a long intro to you, but welcome to the podcast, Neil. Uh, thank you. It's great to be here, Maverick. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. It's funny, I, I can honestly say that I knew you when, and there are not many people that I can say that about. You've been doing amazing, and this is a great podcast and a great um, really, I think filling a, a very important niche in education. Well, I appreciate that. And I am excited. I, for- I was going to tell you, one of the reasons why I say that yeah. is that law school does such a poor job of preparing people for actually practicing law. And I think you really touched on something. And that is that colleges, grad schools don't prepare people for actual careers. So this is a, a really valuable, valuable resource for all kinds of, of people of all different generations. So kudos to you. Well, thank you for that. I do appreciate that. And like I was going to say before is I am looking forward to our interview because I think this is a topic that actually should, in fact, be taught 
in school at some level of education, whether that's high school, whether it's college, because it's general information that people need to know and need to understand. But before we go into what I always call the nitty gritty of the show, which is the reason that people listen, I like to ask my guests some background questions so the listeners can get to know you a little bit more, create a little relationship with you, feel more comfortable with you overall. So where did you grow up, Neil? I actually grew up in Detroit. I didn't grow up in a suburb of Detroit. I actually grew up in the city of Detroit on a street called Renfrew, a great neighborhood. I actually went to Detroit public schools for um, several years. I remember my teachers well. And then um, about uh, the middle, I think, of fourth grade, maybe towards the end of the fourth grade, my fourth grade year, my parents just plucked us out of, of our amazing neighborhood and moved us out to West Bloomfield. And so that's where I ended up the rest of my time was going to uh, Bloomfield Hill Schools and graduated from Andover High School. And for all of you that are not living in the state of Michigan, West Bloomfield and Bloomfield Hill School is a suburb about 25 to 30 minutes outside of Detroit. But did you go to college, Neil? Obviously you did because you are a lawyer. Some people I asked, they did not go to college, but where did you go to college? So I graduated from the University of Michigan and then I went to Wayne State University Law School but I actually began my college at Oakland University, which is a junior college. I was a terrible, terrible high school student. And I don't know if this is a, a good time to share it with you or with yeah, others. Yeah, let's but... do it. Let's do it. So when I was growing up, th there really wasn't a diagnosis of ADD or ADHD. It was just called bad, incorrigible kid. And I never learned to write cursive. I couldn't sit still long enough to do it. My attention span was, uh, I just didn't have the ability to sit in class. I fidgeted, I bounced around, I couldn't sit still. Nobody knew that that was actually a condition at the time, or if they knew it, they really didn't uh, diagnose it. And finally, I was taken by my parents to an old doctor whose name is Dr. Fagenbaum. I never forgot the guy's name either who diagnosed me with ADD or ADHD. And it hampered me all throughout elementary school, throughout junior high school, and throughout um, high school. I was a terrible student. And I battled, Maverick. I battled uh, with my parents over homework hour. So after we ate dinner, when it came time to force me to sit down and do homework, I struggled and I battled. And there were just, you know, there were loud arguments in my house about me doing schoolwork. And so for me, I needed to figure out how to gain confidence, how to be able to harness my the distractions, how to use what you know my skills. And I also needed to figure out how to become a good student and to have pride in being a good student. Yeah, of course. And that all came at junior college in a year. When my peers went away to school and I was and I was home. What was it, do you think? What was it that was the trigger that made you figure out what you needed to do and how you needed to do it? It's a great question. And I thought long and hard about what was, what was the dynamic? What were the elements, the pieces that, um, that, and I don't yet totally know the answer. I think part of it is, is that I learned to study. Part of it is that I developed a routine. Another part was I had a goal. So when you're going through high school, your goal seems like when you're, it just seems sort of out there somewhere. Like your goal is 
it's the future. Yeah, it's something in the future. You don't know what yet, but it's there. Unless you're really focused and targeted and you know what it is, you know, you can harness when you do, you can harness all that energy towards a specific target. But when it's like this, it's like a shotgun. And the more, the further away your target is, the less impact that shotgun is going to have on your target. Mm -hmm. And I think when I went to junior college, I had to one, learn how I had to have a goal. My objective was to go to the University of Michigan. My objective was to get into that school. I wanted to do well in school. I wanted to do what it takes. And so for the very, very first time in my life, I had a specific goal right in front of me. Not like I want to get good grades, but I need to get A's in order to get into Michigan. And so I had to learn how to study and I took pride in getting A's. I took, it gave me confidence. The more confidence I had, the more pride I had, the more pride I had, the more I wanted to do, the better I wanted to do. And that was sort of that goal, like right in front of my face. It's just so easy to lose all of the energy and to be sort of, you know, too scattered, too spread out. I think something for me that I haven't really shared publicly, but I will now since you brought up the topic, because I think these are real life experiences that people don't oftenly talk about, but they need to be talked about because I think people have similar experiences and finding themselves. So to your point, um, in high school, I also struggled with not really doing homework as the same as you, but just with certain topics in school, certain subjects, whether it was math, science, whatever it was, I struggled with them so much. And it wasn't until I was studying for my ACT and my tutor, she, I was taking, I guess, very long to finish a few problems that it was not normal from the students that she had tutored before. And she was like, have you ever gotten tested for having any learning disabilities? And I think the stigma has changed today around learning disabilities. But when I was in high school, there was still kind of this rhetoric, do you like really have a learning disability? Is that real? Sort of that same sort of concept, the ideas that you were saying, that stigmatism. And so I was like, no, I, I don't think so. I mean, I've done pretty well in school. And so I actually went and got tested and I have had very severe dyslexia that now I've recognized that everything I do in life is impacted by my dyslexia. Do I fight through it like you did and figure ways out on how to battle it and how to get past it and know what works for me? Absolutely. But it took that realization point sort of that you brought up. And something else I wanted to bring up for all the listeners out there, because I'm not sure if you're aware, a lot of the listeners of this podcast is a younger audience, whether they're in high school, they're in college, whatever it may be, they're of that younger generation. And for all of you out there know that someone that is a successful attorney like Neil, he battled things in his educational process. He needed to find himself and he needed to learn how he was going to succeed in school. And going off of that, one of my very best friends, his name is Zach Canner, and the kid is a freaking genius. He is a machine. He does whatever it takes. And I I always envied him because I said, look at him, like he's just, the, he has the book smart that I wanted. And so we had a very deep discussion one day and we were talking and he was just like, you know, you just have to do it. You just have to tell yourself, figure out different ways. Just like you said, you just have to figure out it's a, a guess and check. Is this working? Is this not going to work? What, what do I need to change? Things along those lines is what pushed me from talking to my friend and him saying like, hey, you need to figure out what's going to work for you. You want to push yourself. And literally ever since I had that conversation, I changed 
everything. I started studying very intensely. I started putting all my effort into schoolwork because just like you, I knew I had goals that I wanted to achieve and wanted to fulfill them. And once I got those, I made new sets of goals. So I think that was a very important discussion for people to understand that people do go through these things. It's just a matter of getting back out. In fact, I saw someone else who has a podcast, Hell Has an Exit. Uh, It's a very great podcast if any of you want to go listen to it. But he wrote saying, I fall, but I never, something along the lines where I fall in, but I always get back up. And I think in life, that's especially what you need to do, no matter what it is. You need to get back up. You need to figure out where you went wrong and keep going and moving past that. But getting us back on track here, why did you choose to go into criminal defense law? I started off as a as an assistant prosecutor in the Oakland County Prosecutor's Office, so an office just outside of Detroit. I always wanted to be a trial lawyer. So that's what I, I just, that was my skill set. That was, each case was like a competition. I wanted to win. I had to win. I love that idea. And just my background, along with sort of the history of my family, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. And so I always just related to the little guy. I always felt a connection to the underdog. And there's no greater underdog in society than a person who is accused of crime, period. To be a criminal defense lawyer, you have to identify with the person that stands one against a thousand. You have to stand with the Davids against the Goliath. There's no bigger power than the state. There's no one that has more resources than the state. So I always just, even when I was a prosecutor, I began as a prosecutor and I was aggressive as hell and I wanted to win every case. And I, you know, I wanted every trial and I was hungry to to get trial experience. But as I got it, I emulated, I looked up to the defense lawyers. I looked up to the the guys that were in there, like one guy against the tide, like stopping, you know, someone from being convicted. And I could just relate to that. Yeah, I respected these guys so much and it gave me, gave me shivers to think that um, down my spine and it made the hair on the back of my neck. And I'm thinking that I could do what they do and I could do it really well. In fact, I would say to myself, like, I can do it better than anybody. That was sort of my mindset. I believe that I was put here to be the best of the best. I think so. (laughs) I believe that there's nobody that I want trying to case other than me. People ask me, like, how do you do it? What are you going to say? What are you going to argue? And a lot of times I'm like, I can't really tell you. Like, I have an idea, but some of it just comes out of me. I just think of it. And um, and I wanted to do it. And the first day that I appeared representing a uh, person accused of a crime, from that day on, I never looked back, ever. I want to win so badly. Like, I want to win for my clients, but I want to win for me. I want to win. And so... For someone that is competitive and for someone that is interested in like the, you know, every is in showmanship and gamesmanship and humor and um, storytelling and, you know, challenging people and being a contrarian and picking apart things and using logic. This was like the perfect storm for me. And I always view myself in that way. Like I'm the perfect storm coming. It was just a natural fit. Like if you told me tomorrow, Maverick, if you said, Neil, You could continue to be a lawyer, but you can't go to court. You can't try cases. What would you do? I would hang it up. (laughs) I would hang it up. That's my skill. Yeah. I'm not good at forming corporations or businesses or my skill is picking things apart, 
telling stories, reframing them. You know, that's my skill set. It was that hosting a radio talk show or stand up, you know, as stand up comedy. And I wasn't a very good comedian and nobody really gave me much of a shot at being a long term radio talk show host. So this was it. So they're stuck with me as a criminal defense lawyer. Yeah. And I think it's important, too, that you realize what you are the best at. Because I think a lot of people, especially that listen to this podcast in that age range, you ask someone that's going to school unless they want to be a doctor or they know they want to be a lawyer, people don't know what the hell they want to do or what they are the best at. It takes trial and error. It takes understanding what your skills are, what you're good at. People end up going to law school for a lot of different reasons. And some end up going to law school because they want to continue on with another three or four years of something like their undergraduate education. You know, the other three or four years of kind of putting off reality. That's a terrible reason to go to law school. I never understand people like that. They're like, oh, just take a few more years. If you want to take some time off, take some time off and become cultured. Go get a backpack, get stamp your passport, land in, um, you know, this is pre-COVID, but land somewhere in, in Europe and and backpack and hike your way through Europe working odd jobs and staying at hostels and becoming like a man or woman of the world. Yeah, no. But don't go torture yourself in law school and don't take up a spot uh, in law school that somebody else who really wants to be a lawyer yeah, really wants that spot. Don't take that spot from them just because you, you want to prolong life. You want to put it off for a bit. It's a terrible reason to go to law school. I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree with you more, but... A question I have for you that I've always wanted to ask a criminal defense attorney, and I hope you don't take this the wrong way because you know that I love you and you're like family to me, but I'm sure you've heard people saying, how does a person that's representing criminal, whether they are guilty, whether they are innocent, how are you sleeping at night? How do you answer that question? Has First off, has anyone ever asked you that question? And second Everybody off- Everybody asks me those questions. The four questions I get asked the most are questions like that, Maverick. You ever gotten someone who's guilty off um, and, um, you know, how do you, you know, how do you live with yourself? I get asked those questions all the time. So the answer is I sleep horribly, but it has nothing to do at all with any sort of moral battle or over the people I represent. I don't sleep well because I constantly am thinking, strategizing, thinking, reworking, retooling. I used to keep a legal pad by my on my nightstand so that if in the middle of the night I had a brainstorm because I'm sitting there staring at the ceiling thinking of something, a way to cross-examine a witness or a way to trap somebody, and I'm thinking of something, I wouldn't just fall asleep and sleep on it and forget it. I'd wake up and I'd scribble it out. Wow. That's amazing. What do I do? do? I am, um, I sleep, my lack of sleep is due to the fact that I'm just an intense person and I want to win. And so I'm always thinking now I sleep, but when to ask me like, and people do, it's a very common question. How do you live with yourself? Just fine. I view the people that turn to me. These are individual people. They have families, they have loved ones, and they're facing a potential um, being labeled, branded a felon for life. Some are, are potentially looking at going to prison, maybe never seeing their kids again, or the loss of you know, an entire life's uh, um, accumulation of, of life's work. And I don't judge them and think, my God, they're guilty. And how can I do that? I think I want to help you. 
Yeah. And if the state can't make their case, if the government can't make their case against my client, that's not my responsibility. That's not my fault. That's theirs. 100%. You're telling me that I should feel bad that I'm saving Joe Schmo from a, a conviction for a crime because the state who has all of the resources can't muster up enough evidence to convince a jury that he's guilty. I'm not going to feel bad about that. I'm going to feel like I just I'm going to do a touchdown dance and spike the ball. Yeah. No, I'm going to run up to the camera and say, I hope there's Maverick Levy there saying, Neil, where are you going after you just got this guy off? And I'm going to say, I'm going to Disney World. <laughs> no, that because I view these people. These are people that turn to me. Yeah, no, I get it. You're, you're the helping And They don't hand. want a single legal mistake to one single legal mistake to, to ruin their life. I completely get it. And I think I Maverick, I, I tell people this. If the state needed two witnesses, one that was on a trip in Europe and the other that was on a ship, right? Yeah. And they needed the witnesses in trial on Monday. You and I both know that they have the resources to make it happen. Of course. They'll fly a helicopter, pay for their flight back. They'll get them in, in court. They'll order them there. They'll jail them if they don't show up. If I want a witness who is just across the border in the state of Ohio, I can't force that guy to come to Michigan. I could try. Yeah, you have to incentivize them. But I need the cooperation them. of all these courts to do it. And so the reality is that they have the burden. It's their job. It's their job. And if they want to try to get at a client of mine, my mentality always was is they're going to have to work extra hard and they're going to have to work extra. They're going to have to work doubly hard and they're going to bring their best game because that person is hiring me to protect them and I'm going to do it. And I would hope that that answer is one that would show that if God forbid any of the listeners are ever in need of your assistance, that they would, you would be the first person they would call because they should be able to hear. I know that I hear in your voice how much you care and how enthusiastic and how pretty much your whole world, just because I know you on a personal level, is consumed by your family which you care for first things first and then your life and your business is second that's that's what it is and that's how it goes and that's why i respect you so much but so now let's go into some general questions about what you probably are asked by when i know you have some kids that are around my age maybe when they were in high school and college and first starting to experience life on their own when someone gets pulled over what should be the procedure of that person getting pulled over? What should they do? What should they not do? What do you tell your clients or your friends and family? Another excellent question. So the best thing you can do when you get pulled over is be respectful of the police officer. Don't argue. Don't act like the police officer is your parent or somebody that wants to hear get into a back and forth be respectful, be polite, recognize that the police officer is there to do his or her job. Take If they give you a ticket, fine. If they don't give you a ticket, fine. But if they give you a ticket, say thank you. And then you either go to court or you call someone like me. There's a reason for that. You don't want to stand out when you're dealing with the police. You don't want to be the person that the police officers contact the city attorney or right on the back of their or the prosecutor right in the back of the ticket, this kid was an asshole. Yeah. You want to be the person that they think of that was respectful and understood that they had a job to do and a difficult one at that. I see so many people nowadays that want to get at it with the police. They want to argue and be shitty with them and difficult with them. And all you're doing is just reminding the police officer that he or she ought to show up in court and stick to their guns when they're dealing with you. 
Yeah, no, that's a great answer. And so going off of that, when someone is pulled over and they do have this situation that they are in, when and when should they not answer the questions that the officer is asking? Like, where's the line between, okay, I'm going to answer these questions or I'm going to politely, respectfully, professionally say, you know what, I'm not going to answer those questions. It's a tough question to answer generally. If you're pulled over for a traffic ticket, it's in your best interest to cooperate most of the time with the police because you you have a, it all comes down to the officer's discretion, which means it's his or her decision, choice, whether to give you a ticket and what to write you a ticket for. Anybody who's been speeding and is super polite with the police officer and answers all the officer's questions and comes back and the officer comes back and gives them a parking ticket knows that because you cooperated, you got the officer to give you a great break to treat you equally respectfully and sympathetically. Yeah. When you're pulled over, when you're stopped for the potential commission of a serious crime, the benefit of cooperating with the police becomes less and less. So if, for example, the police were to walk up to you and ask you, hey, do you have any, what are you doing here? What's in your pockets? Do you have any drugs or alcohol on you? The value in you answering those questions is the benefit to you is really, really low. I sort of have this rule, if you don't mind me sharing this with you. That yeah, no, of course, we want you to. So every case requires judgment, okay? Every situation. So it's hard to have a one-size-fits-all rule. But of when you talk to the police and you t- give them answers, they're usually using your answers to build a case against you. Almost all of your answers are being calculated by them as factors, elements in admissions or an investigation that you committed a crime. So there are times where you should just shut the fuck up. So there are times where it's worthy of you to answer some questions, um, like in a traffic ticket scenario. But I see some people who get really smart and smarmy, and they think that they saw a YouTube video on how to best avoid getting arrested for DUI, and they come up with all kinds of nonsense about, I don't, I'm not going to roll my window down, officer. Tell me why you stopped me. You need to explain why you're here. I don't have to give you my ID. Those people end up invariably getting the, the, the they get the real thick end of the stick with the officers. So I have a rule that if the police want to talk to you about the serious commission of a crime and you're arrested or something, you ought to keep in mind that you should shut the fuck up. The Miranda warnings really are formal, legalized ways to tell you how serious your communications with the police are. So you have the right to remain silent. What does that really mean? It means shut up. Yeah, anything you say can will be used against you in a court of law. That really means that this is so what we're about to get out of you is going to hurt you. And you have a right to have a lawyer with you. And if you're if you can't afford and we'll give you one, that means it's so important that we'll actually spend the state's money and appoint a lawyer for you. So basically what they're telling you whenever you're arrested or you have the you're in that situation, don't try to talk your way out of it. Don't try to use the same tactics we all use with our parents and trying to talk our way out of our teacher, trying to talk our way out of our professor out of a late test, coming up with an excuse that. Sounds like the dog ate my homework. <laughs> They've heard all that nonsense yeah, before. It's all BS. Because what they're asking you is really only going to hurt you. 
That's a general rule. No, and I, and I appreciate that. And I knew when I was writing my questions and doing my due diligence on this topic, I knew that was going to be a tough one to answer as are some more. So I appreciate you breaking it down as generally as possible because obviously- Give me your best. Let me, let me have the hardest ones. Let's, let, let's hear it. I'm ready. So I was going to ask you, but well, actually, I'll ask this question. Before we move on from the topic of getting pulled over in a vehicle, is there anything else you would want to add that you think the listeners absolutely need to know, or did we cover it all? So a couple. There are a lot of people that have CPLs, and they have a concealed pistol license. Mm-hmm. You have a duty, you have an obligation if you're pulled over, even if it's unrelated to that. If it's because your brake light is out, you have a, a legal obligation to tell the police that right away that you have a CPL and that you have a concealed pistol in your vehicle. Critical. So that's one. The second is, is that it's, I, I can't stress enough that you should not treat the police officers like you would a professor or like you would a teacher or like you would your parent. Because I see it all the time. I watch these videos and we're sitting like this and we're like, God, who's this guy? Think that he's fooling. You're not fooling anybody. And they try to fool the police. And the police are like, mm-hmm, 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 okay. You know, and they know the stories are BS. Yeah. And their people are stringing together and they contradict themselves and they say things. The police are trained to get answers out of you. They're trained to get answers out of you. Sometimes, and a lot of times when they ask you questions, they already know the answers to the questions. Of they course. They know you should answer. So, you know, tread carefully when you decide that you want to thrust and parry with someone that has the power to arrest you. What about these people that are filming their run-ins, right? They're putting their phone in the cup holder and they're saying, officer, just so you know, my phone is recording everything right here. I've seen a lot of videos like that online of people sort of trying to outsmart the officer, like you're saying, but it ends up hurting them, I would say, a majority of the time. But what do you think about that whole situation that's going on in the society right now with, we're going to record the police, I'm going to put my phone here, I'm going to tell them that it's there so they know. What do you have to say about that? So I think recording the police is fine. I think that transparency, I think that cell phones have become one of the great equalizers in the legal system. They have enabled people, and of course that can be abused, and people abuse it sometimes, But so much used to happen before there were squad car videos. So that's the police cars are equipped with videos in their dash cam. Yeah. And rear facing cameras that face into the backseat of the patrol car. Um, Officers now wear body cams. So the progression was no recordings. And we were left with just police officers writing out what they say happened. And that was, of course, invariably pro-police and always bad for the accused. Yeah, of course. Then... We have dash cam videos. Those uh, created more transparency. Um, body cam, they're called BWC, body-worn cameras. Those created more transparency. And civilian cell phones can really create a lot of transparency, can prevent the police from abusing their authority. Um, the challenge, though, is, is that when do you record? Do you record every interaction? Do you tell the police you're recording them? In Michigan, you don't really, you don't have to. You have a First Amendment right to record the police, which means that you're right under the First Amendment to free speech, to redress your grievances. That's protected First Amendment activity if you decide you want to record the police. The problem is that when you, when, if, when you tell them, officer, I'm recording you, I mean, all you're doing is you are increasing the hostility. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're creating a situation that maybe didn't need to be to that level and extent. It's like in a poker game, 
you're just coming over the top and betting more. The officer's like, hey, why are you here? Officer, I'm recording you. Okay, so I, I raised you recording me, and now I want to search your car. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So you're, it's like a check, check, raise. I re-raise, and then I, you know, so all you're doing is escalating. I follow. Is there a moment in time where you should where you should rec- record what the police are doing? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think there are very valuable times. Very, There are some very important moments to do that. But is it every time? Is it every encounter? No. And I think that that has ended up having a big impact on, um, on law enforcement. I think they know that they can be recorded. They And they should know. And they should know that those recordings can end up and have, as you know, in many situations, George Floyd, for example, and I, that 10 years ago, George Floyd's case would have been written up as though he were resisting police. There would have been no transparency about the levels that the officers went in that case. And George Floyd, probably the officers would have probably ended up getting some kind of a commendation for how they handled somebody that was out of control. Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent, and I think in today's culture, sort of moving along, uh, what there's something I want to talk about is guilty versus innocent. You know, assumed innocent, assumed guilty, and something I want to ask you because this is your field, this is your specialty, and I know you are very involved in today's society and culture, trying to be intertwined in it. My personal view is that people automatically associate someone who has done something. Uh, and is being accused of something as thinking that they are guilty. And I think that it's a horrible change our society has had that they are thinking someone is guilty just because they're accused and they are not you know, innocent until proven guilty, as the old saying goes. Why do you think that we're seeing this shift of people? You know, Something you brought up is cell phones recording things. And I think that has a lot to do with it because nowadays everyone has this instinct that they are climbing for or scratching at instant gratification, right? They can get anything in the split of a second. They can see anything. They can search anything up. You can really know anything in the split of a second um, briefly. And so why do you think we're seeing the shift as people are just associating someone as being guilty just because they're being accused of something? It's something that I confront every single day in jury selection. You ever driven by somebody on the side of the road and seen them pulled over and see a police officer behind them, Maverick? Of course. And what's the first thing that goes through your mind or goes through the mind of a person that points? You could have someone in the car with you who sees that and goes, hey, Mav, look at that guy being pulled over. And what's the next question that they ask? I wonder what he did or she did. Right. Nobody ever drives by the car on the side of the road and says, I wonder what he's being harassed over or I wonder what he's being wrongly accused of. We have a natural tendency to want to assign blame. We People still believe to this day that if you're accused of a crime, you're likely guilty, that you likely did something. Because why would the legal system pick on you? They wouldn't just pull you out of the thin air and pluck you out and say that you did something. So we confront these things all the time. The presumption of innocence, I mean, it's a legal concept, but it, what it really means is it really is sort of the legal application of the golden rule. Think best about other people. If someone in in everyday life, we abuse that concept. Somebody comes and applies for a job and they apply for a job with a company and, and, and the employer says, you know, you are, you're perfect for the job. 
you're awesome. We want to hire you to start Monday. The guy says, you know, I've got a criminal case that I'm going to trial on on Monday. I'm innocent. And what is the employer likely to say? Yeah. The employer is likely to say no. Of course. Even if you of said, course, of course. You interviewed somebody and said, well, I was found not guilty. Will you still hire me? And the, well, I'm not sure. Maybe not. Yeah, it's it's crazy. terrible. That's just that we have this judgment where we judge people as being, but there's prejudice too. Maverick, I you've you've done a lot with your in business. You've done more in business than most people your age. You're more entrepreneurial than most most people at your age. But I guarantee you that there are people who are prejudiced when they pull up at a at a light or they see you at a restaurant and they see you paying for an expensive restaurant and they see you there with your girlfriend or your friends. And they probably think, who is this wealthy kid? Whose son is he? And the reality is, is that they have no idea that you've earned what you've gotten because to them, they can't, it's just prejudgment. They can't imagine that, you know, they prejudge you. They prejudge, you pull up at a traffic light and you see somebody who's black or African-American and they have an earring in there and they're driving a nice car how many people say, you know, wonder where that guy practices medicine? Yeah, of course. It's terrible. There's just so much prejudgment out there based upon stereotypes. And the stereotype is if the police have pulled you over or they've accused you that you likely did something. Yeah. And it's hard to shake that. If someone is guilty of a crime and they hire Neil to represent them, can they tell you that they are guilty or what happens if they tell you that they're guilty? I represent people who are guilty. Some of the people, most of the people that I represent have done something wrong. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I've got like a stable of clients who are all innocent. Do I think some of them are accused without evidence? Yeah. Are there some that we believe are accused who are innocent? Yes. But we also know that we represent some that are, are guilty or likely guilty. And some come in and sit down and tell me they did it. The consequence of that is that we can't put them on the, on the witness stand to say that they didn't do it. So if you come in and you say, Neil, I did this. I was drunk driving. I had 15 shots of fireball. I was completely hammered, was all over the road. Boy, was I drunk. And I know that I was drunk. And I can't put that guy in the stand to say that he wasn't drunk or that he didn't drink. But I can sure as hell challenge the state's case that the traffic stop was illegal or the officer did the investigation poorly or that the officer prejudged my client or that the breath test that he tried to admit against my client was, was unreliable or that the blood test that he obtained from my client was scientifically unreliable or, or faulty. I can do all of that. And I have done that. And I would do that again. The fact that someone comes in and tells me they're guilty doesn't change whether I'm willing to defend them. It just means that there are certain things that I can't do in defending them and I can't put them on the stand to say something different than what they told me. Now, on the other hand, what if someone comes into the office, sits down with you, tells you a story, and as you're doing your investigation and your deep dive and your due diligence, you realize that that person was lying to you. What do you do in that situation? That's another good question. Um, Lying to your lawyer is, um, it's like lying to your doctor as they're about to hook up, you know, give you an injection. They ask, have you, you know, do you take, have you taken any recreational drugs? Because if you have, and I give you this shot, you're, you know, it's going to, the reaction is going to be a heart attack. 
In that moment, you would be foolish to lie to your lawyer, I mean, to your doctor. All you're doing is hurting yourself. So when we find out that people lie to us, which happens, um, it affects the relationship. It affects the attorney-client relationship. It affects the trust that we have in the client. But I also understand, Maverick, that there are people are so scared sometimes. They're so nervous. They're so worried about the consequences of their uh, being convicted. And they're so scared uh, about not being that someone like me or another lawyer in my shoes is not going to fight to the death for them because they're guilty. I understand that sometimes they're going to want to lie or withhold facts. I don't like it, but I know that there's a human component behind it. They don't want to do it. They're just afraid to come in and tell me, hey, Neil, I did it because they're afraid that I'll think less of them and that I won't fight as hard. So part of the responsibility as a lawyer is to try to encourage our clients, my clients, to know that I'm going to fight for you no matter what. I view you as a person. And if I don't like you and I don't view you as a person, or I don't view you as somebody that I can go into court and I can defend to the teeth, then I won't represent you. I'll turn your case away. And that has happened. That happens many times. Wow. So if you come in and you're an asshole to my my paralegal, you're an asshole to my staff. And we meet together before we decide to take your case. And we're all like, God, this guy is such an asshole. We're, we will very politely just say, you know what? It's not worth it for us, man. Maybe there's another lawyer out there that's better for you because I can't start off wanting to help somebody who's who's that difficult. But I know that sometimes they lie to us because they're scared. Yeah. No, being scared is definitely, I'm sure, a big part of what's in the head of someone that's going to come into your office for the first time and they know that either they've done something wrong they've been accused of doing something wrong or they just don't really understand what's going on and that's why they're coming to you to navigate through mucky waters and i'm sure that it's not always purposeful or not always intentional and like you said it's human nature to protect yourself protect your instinct protect your freedom if, exactly right. if that's at stake because why would someone not want to do that but i the reason i asked you that question and again i'm sorry neil for your business side of things i hope none of my listeners are ever in a position where they are going to be represented by you but if they are the reason i wanted to ask that is so they know right now that of course this is something you're not taught in school that it is better to be honest with your attorney with the person that is representing you because they can get the whole picture and just like you heard neil say it doesn't mean he's going to think of you less he's not going to fight as much he's not going to do x y or z that he would have done if you were you know lying to him and telling him things that maybe you think would appease him but instead it's the opposite it's he wants to know everything so he can create a game plan so he can fight for you the best that he can without anything coming up that would hinder his argument in the courtroom and that's just what i wanted to say about that Again, switching topics a little bit, Neil. We've been talking about all different kinds of things, but what are some general legal tips, I guess you could call it, or advice you could call it, that you think should be taught in school about law? What should people know? First, if you're a prospective law student and you want to go to law school, you should know that law school is not going to teach you how to be a lawyer. It is diametrically opposite of medical school. Medical school teaches you how to be a doctor. Maybe it doesn't teach you bedside manner, but it teaches you how to treat people 
and they actually have practical rounds where you actually work with doctors and hospital settings treating actual patients. Not the case with law school. Law school is theoretical. It's doctrinal. You read about cases. So when you go to law school, remember that every single great trial lawyer, every single great corporate lawyer or lawyer who specializes in mergers and acquisitions or whatever has gone through the very same boring, difficult, annoying, not practical, impractical legal experience, law school experience, number one. So that leads to what I think that law schools should do. Law schools should teach people how to be lawyers. I don't need to know what a contract case from old England before there was the United States of America in 1684, what some king's court decided. I don't need to know what a court decided in or to be challenged on how two courts in two different era from the, you know, in the 50s and the, the 70s, so conservative 50s and 70s progressive, how the Supreme Court reached two different decisions. I don't need to know that. What do people who are young prospective law students and lawyers need to know? How do you put your name on the record? How do you come up with a fee agreement? How do you introduce yourself to a client and his family? How do you open a file? How do you file certain pleadings or paperwork in court? What's the mechanism for that? Do the papers just magically go from your computer to the courthouse or do you have to do certain things? Do it to look a certain way? When you enter, a, when you go to court, when you go to, if, if you wanna be a, little simple things like that. Like when you leave law school, you don't even know how to prepare a document that will tell you, like that, that will announce to the world that you're representing Jane Doe or John Doe. Wow, that's crazy. You know, it's an appearance. You, we lawyers learn what it looks like, but they don't teach you that. You have to learn that practically. They don't, no one tells you like what to look for in the, what to ask for when you go to court. Like for example, if you were to say to some young law student or a guy who just graduated law school and took the bar and passed, hey, will you write me a contract? If that person doesn't look at you and say, I'll do my best, but I could get it wrong. They're just, they're kind of bluffing you to get, to make some money because they haven't learned any of that in law school. Which is so crazy to me. That is so crazy. It's crazy. And so imagine if you were to walk into us, you're, you're, you're wheeled in for surgery. You're about to have sur open heart surgery. And the doctor stands there and says, Hey, Maverick, I'm Dr. You know, so-and-so. And then tell someone, Hey, will you open that book to page five? <laughs> um, and flip the page. Cause I need to figure out how to make the incision you would like, as you're going out from the, the drugs, you'd be like, wait, you know, yeah. don't practice on me. Yeah. So how I got, how I became a prosecutor was because I kept telling people during interviews, when I was interviewing for jobs, I kept telling these large law firms, they're like, why should we hire you? And I said, because I'm going to be the greatest trial lawyer ever. I already know it. I'm going to be the best trial lawyer there is, was, period. And they're looking at me like, bursting out laughing and <laughs> looking at me like, what are you talking about, kid? Like, who said? And I didn't even know what I was saying. 
I just thought I'd be this great trial lawyer. But the fact of the matter is, is that a peer of my dad's pulled me aside one day because I was really frustrated with the fact that I couldn't find like a job. Nobody, I couldn't, why don't I want to hire me? I want to be this great trial lawyer. And he goes, cause you don't know shit. <laughs> cause you need to learn how to the rules of evidence. You need to learn how to make appearances in court, how to question witnesses. You need to have trial experience. So you need to either go and the only places to get a lot of trial experience are either in the prosecutor's office or a public defender's office. You need to go to one of these places. And if you, that's what you want to do, you need to get your chaps. Yeah. Cause law school doesn't teach you any of that, man. None of it. And it's the real life experience that it's really going to teach you everything of when you're going through it and when you're doing it. And I talk a lot so often and unfortunately we won't have the time to talk about it, but I definitely want to bring you on a different episode and talk about some different things that you've poked at my curiosity about while talking. But mistakes, making mistakes is so essential for success because you learn what you did wrong, you grow from it, you understand how to not make that same mistake again, I hope. And that's something that's sort of what you're saying. And again, while this podcast, I focus on all different kinds of topics at the base, base layer, right? Because uh, to use an analogy for this case, if we were sitting here talking about how to do all these things, sure, what a potential student who just graduated law school is no longer a student, I should say, and they just took their bar, they passed their bar, and now they're trying to navigate through the system. Well, they would understand a little bit more than they understood before, but could use the information that we're talking about to build on that to grow from it, to understand how to do these things. And that is the whole goal of the podcast. So obviously you were talking about law school and what they're not teaching you, the that they're not teaching the fundamentals that are necessary to be a great lawyer or to, to be a lawyer in general, which is so crazy to say. How about even just opening up a business? Yeah. Like, so lawyers are, we're businesses. Yeah. But what's the first thing you do? You know, you have to open up what, articles of incorporation. Do you get business cards? Do you get an insurance policy? What kind of malpractice insurance do you carry? You know, where's your office going to be? What about your phone line? What's your website going to look like? What can you say on your website? What can you not say? Yeah, all those things. No one teaches any of this stuff. And it's it's terrible. And the meanwhile, all the lawyers that are coming out and practicing, and it's not their fault, but they're coming out and practicing, they're trying to make a living. They're trying to learn on the fly. That's difficult for for them, and it's maybe not fair for the clients because the clients think they're getting like, you know, can I tell you a quick story? Yeah, let's do it. So I went to law school with a guy who um, ended up being one of my really, really, really close friends through law school. I was, of course, in my 20s, and he was in his um, 40s. He had just finished the uh, a career in music, being a, um, a record promoter, and he made a lot of money doing that. And... I did really well in law school. I did really well on the bar exam and knew my knew my shit in court as a prosecutor. He finished law school like I think he might have finished dead last in our law school. Wow. And I think he barely passed the bar. Like he may have had to like fight for a half a point to pass the bar exam, but he did. And he opened up his practice and he had his diploma on the wall and he was an instant success. And I joke, I used to, he used to joke at me. He says, can you believe that you finished that, you know, you did this well and like this. And I of course didn't. And people still think that I'm this great lawyer. And he would tell me the reason was, was because he had a salt and pepper beard and he, looked like he was in his forties. 
<laughs> the only time salt and pepper has ever helped anyone. He looked like he'd been around forever. Yeah. Even though he hadn't. And I looked like I was, you know, like a fresh face. You know what I mean? Like yeah. young whippersnapper. And so I, I never forgot that story. I haven't talked about it in a while, but I remember that story because it showed me that how easily you could be judged by by being young, even if you've got skills. You have to learn to deal with that sort of stuff and to get around it and to be able to show that you know what you're doing and that it, that you're, uh, people should trust you. And, you know, you, you got to know what you're doing. Absolutely. But, Neil, unfortunately, we are winding down to the end of the interview. I have two last questions for you. The first one is how can someone contact you if they want to? So you can contact my office. Uh, my Our office number is area code 248 208-3800. Or you can uh, go online. Um, our websites are pretty easy to find. You can Google search my name, N-E-I-L space R-O-C-K-I-N-D. You can also um, look up my law firm, which is Rockhine Law. You can find my podcast, killercrossexamination.com. Or you can email me at Neil, which is N-E-I-L, and it's my last name, Rockhind law.com. Awesome. Thank you. And for all the listeners, don't forget, you can visit the podcast website, tbotbpod.com, and all of his contact information will be on there as well as a way to navigate. And for the last question, and this is one that I ask all of my guests, Neil, what do you wish you knew in your early 20s? Listen to that silence. I like it. it means he's thinking hard. What do I wish I knew in my early 20s? Those were only a few years ago. I'm sure you can remember. Yeah. I wish I had known that I should stop once in a while and soak it in. I was in a hurry to get here. I wish I had stopped and taken a look around and spent more time sort of enjoying life, enjoying my grandparents enjoying my parents in their youth or more in their youth. Wish I'd spend some more time kind of soaking that up and not been in such a hurry to get here. My career's out there. If you know what you want to do and you have the ability to do it, you're going to get there. But at some point, there's more of life in, in, behind you than is ahead of you. And thankfully for your listeners, that's not the case because you have a young audience and most of their lives are ahead of them. But slow down. You'll get there. Yeah. But enjoy some of the things that that are are able to see some sights. Take advantage of your parents' sanity. Take advantage of your grandparents being alive. Live a little before you um, decide to throw yourself headfirst into uh, your career, or at least find a balance. Yeah. No, I absolutely love that, Neil. I mean, you know me. You know my family. I'm a family guy, and the greatest thing that happened besides the devastation of COVID was me being able to come home from school and spend this time with my family, with my little brother, and just seemed like I was back in high school again, waking up and doing school from home. And it honestly was a blessing because my brother, he's going to be 15 here in a little bit. 
And he just, you know, it's to see him grow up and to watch that wasn't something I was a part of because I was at school. And when I made the decision to come home, I was wondering if I was going to regret going from living in my own place (laughs) and having my own space to living with my family. But it truly was a blessing. I've been able to spend time with them. I've been able to grow and learn and be in the family business and create businesses, create this podcast. So I, I, awesome. And your family is so close and your dad just, uh, and I, I've been very careful. I think through our conversation to recognize that you're your own man and you're creating your own path, being your dad's peer um, and someone who's known you my, you know, I don't say your whole life, but for a lot of your life and known each other for a very long time and our families having known each other, your dad, the twinkle in his eye at seeing your success as your own man is, um, you know, is really rewarding. And, uh, you know, father-son relationships are tough. And I think that you guys have done an amazing job of navigating that. And so um, I appreciate you sharing that with me. Yeah, thank you. I I hope to be able to emulate that with my children, with my boys. 100%. And I know you do. Well, that's it for today's interview, Neil. Again, thank you so much for coming on, having this conversation with me. There's so much to learn from this conversation. Seriously, this went a little bit in a different direction than I anticipated, but I couldn't have loved it more. I was thrilled to have the discussion. And I myself took a lot away from this conversation, so I'm sure the listeners will as well. But Neil, stay safe, stay healthy, the old cliche saying that everyone's now saying, and we'll stay in touch, man. You bet. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me. Neil is a true leader in his industry. He is one of the best of the best criminal defense attorneys, especially in the state of Michigan. I know this will be my third time saying it, but I really hope that none of you never are put in a position where you need to contact Neil's office for his services. But if you do, you now know who the best of the best is. You now know the manner in which to act at a traffic stop. We've talked about so many things, general life advice, life advice you should know that's maybe not so general and specific to if you want to do something. But I know today's topic was pretty unique, but it's definitely one that is not talked about in school. And it's always just positive and beneficial for yourself to know these things and to understand them. Remember, I always say, always be learning, which is why I will have the best of the best in whatever industry on so they can educate not just you all, but myself as well on what they know better than anyone else. So we can all have that ground base of knowledge that we can build off of, but at least we have that foundational information and understand the gist and the basics of it. Thank you everyone for supporting the show. I can't tell you how much it means to me. Please continue to tell a friend, coworker, family member, roll down the window, yell to a random person walking outside, whatever it is. And you know, I always say, if you're listening on an iOS device, an Apple device, and you're using the Apple podcast app, please leave a five-star review for the show as it just helps the growth and analytics. But that's it for this week, everyone. You just listened to another brand new episode of the best of the best Mavericks Guide to Success. I'll talk to everyone next week.